With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Coming up on this week's show, one of the worst game controllers ever is back. Atari are bringing back some 7800 classics. And we chat Simpson the Spectrum with Richard Faulkner. And the Retro Hour podcast is brought to you each and every week with our incredible friends at Bitmap Books. Now, one of my favourite books that they've done recently is Ants to Zombies, Six Decades of Video Game Horror. Now, spanning more than 600 beautifully illustrated pages, this lets you look at some classic horror games and some unfairly overlooked gems. Looking back at the riches of six decades of video game horror. So you can check that out on the rest of their retro gaming collection right now at bitmapbooks.com. And with our mates at PCBWay. Now, you know PCBWay. They offer top-quality, fast-turnaround PCBs and also services like 3D printing and CNC milling. And you know they're massive supporters of the retro community. Have a look at their website and check out the Shared Projects page where you can explore so many incredible retro designs and hardware. Check them out and get a quote today at PCBWay.com. And welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 414, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And a very warm welcome to the podcast. Of course, a show that every single week gives us an opportunity to completely geek out about all things retro, all things tech, and of course, bring you up to speed on the big happenings in the world of retro gaming from over the last week with a very special guest on the second half of the podcast. And I'm hoping that we're all in quite a, a sprightly mood on this week's show. Now that it's finally out of the way, what always feels like the longest month of the year, January at long last is behind us. <laughs> Although uh, weather not feeling that much warmer here in the UK, admittedly, at the moment. I think I'm trying to keep my, uh, my little studio warm with uh, a couple of CRT monitors that are glowing away did, and pumping out a bit of heat next to me. Did any of you guys manage a dry January at all? Uh, I think I no. lasted about four <laughs> days. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so yeah, same. Yeah, drier than maybe December was, admittedly. Um, but obviously, I mean, there is lots to look forward to for the rest of the year. And I imagine lots of partying coming up as well um, as we get into the warmer months this year because uh, plans are already underway for some huge retro gaming events. Actually, the first one, you're going to be doing a, a, a gaming market in Leeds this weekend as well, aren't you, Joe? Yeah, on Saturday the 3rd, I'm so going tomorrow. to be at the, which is tomorrow, yeah, the video game market uh, in Leeds, uh, which has been held at the, oh, it's the, the Royal Armouries Museum. Yeah. Um, which would be interesting. But I'm going to be there with uh, my friend Jason uh, on our stall, Days of Thunder Gaming, which will, will you know, I, I really enjoy it. It kind of started out as a, you know, a passion to fuel our Mega Drive collection, yeah. man. And, Man and Jason, so yeah, it's kind of become a uh, quarterly thing for us now to be at the uh, the video game uh, markets. But this is the first one we've done, kind of more towards the north. Yeah. So be interesting to see some different faces, and you know, if you're there and you want to come and say hey, come say hello. Yeah, and you only charge fifty quid for a selfie, I believe. 
<laughs> you, you know what somebody actually said last time you're like Joe's going to be doing games for a quid and they're yeah. like Dan said you're going to be doing games for a quid so cheers Dan <laughs> the prices will be on the store but yeah if you're anywhere near Leeds this weekend uh, go along and see Joe and Jason there and of course uh, the one thing that everyone's been talking about in the Amiga scene Ravi is uh, you're going to be bringing back that massive UK based Amiga Expo that you did for the first time last summer Kickstart is going to be back Yes, this is uh, got the great name of Kickstart 02. <laughs> Very original. Yeah, it must have took you a long time and, uh, to think of that one. Yeah, yeah. And we're, <laughs> we're going to come back and um, it's on the 29th and the 30th of June in Nottingham at the uh, Medellin Football Ground, which is the home in Notts County, uh, the oldest professional football club. And um, this year is pretty cool. I've been, you know, keeping stuff close to my chest this year and uh, I'm pleased to make some announcements as well. Um, I've kind of gone a bit mad again and um, mm. increased it a lot. So we've got a whole extra room upstairs where we're doing talks and that means we can knock the capacity up. So it's going to be 800 people over the weekend, which is going to be pretty amazing to see 800 people there all kind of enjoying all aspects of Amiga because... Um, you know, I love Amiga. We d- we don't shut up about it. But um, <laughs> the show has like a look back at the nostalgic stuff, but also a kind of look forward uh, to stuff that's happening at the moment. So yeah. um, tickets are going to go on sale on the 12th of February. And um, it's going to be really interesting. We've got some cool guests. So uh, first one that, you know, I'm really pleased to announce is Pete Cannon. Yeah, we had him on the podcast a while ago, didn't we? Incredible musician. Yeah, he's produced, like, adverts for David Beckham, mm. uh, you know, Adidas, like, major brands. Uh, one of the iPhone launchers as well. He does chart music, and, like, a lot of it is using Amiga. So, um, yeah, he's going to be talking about that, but also doing, like, a DJ set at the after party because the yeah. after party is a huge thing. So he's going to be doing, like, the the prime DJ set, you know, the top slot. Then we've got uh, John Shawler as well who's coming from uh, America, from the Amigos podcast, who are uh, a really good friend, yeah. And um, he's coming over. He's going to be hosting all the panels, which means I can do more stuff. Nice. <laughs> and uh, also, he's going to do a live show there. And then we've got Stu Cambridge as well of uh, Sensible Software. So, you know, Stu Cambridge has done some absolutely amazing art, and he's going to be talking all about his artwork, not just for Sensible Games as well, stuff like Cybercop, mm. The Executioner, Echo a game of survival as well. And uh, then we've got a lot more announcements as well. So I'm just holding the gold at the moment. I'm waiting <laughs> to kind of eke them out over time because we've still got quite a while till the event happens. But um, it'll really come around quickly. You know it will. Yeah. <laughs> oh, <laughs> it always you does. Know. It always does. Yeah. <laughs> so if you want to get tickets for that, then they go and sale. I got about two weeks to wait on the 12th of February. Uh, the website, amigashow.com. At the That's place to get the, the tickets, yeah. yeah. So uh, I'll link that up in the show notes as well. Um, even if you know, because obviously you and I are massive fans of the Amiga, but Joe came along last year, just having a, a great retro event in our hometown. Even though Joe's not an Amiga fan, you still loved the weekend in the last we're, year. We're actually going to have an Atari table, so you know nice. there are other <laughs> systems there. There's going to be some arcade units as well. Yeah, who's going to be brave enough to sit on the Atari table all weekend? I <laughs> I'd do it. I brought a Sega and PlayStation table. You, <laughs> you sold a load of PlayStation games last year. I did. I did. I sold a load of PlayStation <laughs> games. I was slinging PlayStation games to cheat. And people yeah. would come over and be like, what are you selling this Atari show for? I'll take Alien Trilogy. 
<laughs> Amiga, like, yeah, Amiga show, you slipped up there, dude. Oh, I did. Show, I yeah. did. <laughs> Get out. <laughs> He's banned. So, uh, yeah, looking really forward to that. And uh, I'm sure there'll be more huge events as we get into the warmer months. Uh, fingers crossed, not too far away now. Uh, but speaking of events, some of that we've seen at a couple of events over the years, in particular, you know, these small little uh, intimate events at the Retro Computer Museum in Leicester is today's special guest. And uh, he also does some really interesting work on the ZX Spectrum Next. And actually, I got hold of my Spectrum Next, the um, Kickstarter 2 model that landed on my doorstep uh, just before Christmas. And I did put a little uh, image up on our Instagram of it under my Christmas tree, which is very nostalgic. And um, since we did that, you know, a little picture on there, and a lot of people have basically got the, the Spectrum Next in their collection now. We've had a few tweets of people going, we'd love to hear a bit more Spectrum Next coverage. Now, yeah. guest today is doing some incredible stuff on the Specky Next, isn't he? Well, it's, it's, it's mad because there's this whole group of developers now on the Spectrum Next and yeah. the, really pushing it. And a lot of it's done like collaboratively and online. And uh, Richard, he's a sound guy. So, you know, he's he's really into his hardware since um, he's known as one man in his techno shed as well. And nice. um, he's actually been on um, uh, the Blank Canvas album, which was uh, one being released for the Retro Computer Museum. But he's working with a team that are creating some absolutely amazing games on the Spectrum Next. And the thing that I love about it is these Spectrum Next titles might get ported onto the Switch yeah. and onto the PlayStation. So actually, people are like using the Spectrum Next as their fun development playground, creating these titles, and then they're going out to the wider world. So one of them's Bikers, which um, the soundtrack is absolutely banging because, you know, Richard's really into techno. And... Um, one that's on pre-order at the moment is TX1696, and that just looks massively impressive. So we talk all about kind of his history with the Spectrum, also a bit of a plus four talk for Dan as well, because I know... Yeah, he started on the Commodore plus four, didn't he? Yeah. yeah. So it's a really interesting chat. I mean, as a new Spectrum Next owner, you know, cause to me, I, I've, you know, I've got the machine, but I wasn't a Spectrum guy back in the day, so I'm really starting from scratch. And chatting to Richard, I mean, he gave us some really good advice on kind of, you know, where to go to get like a list of games and where you can get them from and kind of, you know, places to look at, you know, getting information on the scene, on the Spectrum scene right now. So it was really useful for that as well. But also the fact that the, the ZX Spectrum is attracting not only a lot of the original developers, because obviously, you know, Jim Bagley was basically the guy that convinced me to get a Spectrum next, seeing him at, you know, Play Expo, demoing it and all these incredible events and having him on the podcast. The fact that Mike Daly, you know, of Lemmings fame, yeah. you know, following DMA Design, he's, you know, doing a lot on the Spectrum next right now as well. Um, Clive Townsend, he's just re-released Saboteur on the, uh, the Spectrum next as well. And I know that Richard is actually working with Patricia Curtis, who's been involved in video games for about, what, I think, 35 years. He's working with her on um, that new TX1696 game as well. So hearing about some of these kind of iconic figures who are involved in the Spectrum Next scene, but also, like you said, Ravi, this kind of new talent that's coming through as well, this new community around it is really interesting. So I think for anyone that's got an interest in the, the Spectrum Next and what it can do and just kind of, you know, retro indie development in general, and of course, a lot of geeky music chat we always love that yeah don't we? That, Been audio that's guys. what that's why i love this chat because yeah. you know he doesn't use like software simps or anything he no. uses hardware stuff but he's also using ataris he's using midi all, all kinds of devices to kind of uh make these tunes and uh, you've got to hear his music some of it's absolutely banging yeah, which obviously I'll link up if you want to check it out in the show notes. And our special guest, Richard Faulkner, is coming up on the podcast in around half an hour from now. 
But of course, first half of the podcast is where we bring you up to speed on what's been happening in the world of retro from over the last week. And uh, I don't know how many people are going to be excited about this one, because uh, this is what is generally considered one of the worst video game controllers of all time has been re-released. What do you mean you're not ecstatic for this, Dan? <laughs> well, this is the uh, the Philips CDI, often nicknamed the, the CDI lollipop controller. The lollipop, well... It will, if, will be a lollipop if you buy the bright pink version. Yes. Um, so we covered on the show oh, about three months ago, four months ago, that there is a spiritual successor coming out to the awful Zelda CDI games called yep. uh, Arzetti, the Jewel of Faramore, which is, you know, brand new game that's uh, going up for pre-release um, today, I believe, on the day of this release for the next month for a limited run. And the game is pretty much... Very similar to, uh, is it Wanda Gamelot and what's the other one called? Link Faces of Evil. Link Faces of Evil. There we go. That's Cheers, it, mate. Yeah. So it's based, the style of the game is based on that and, you know, 2D platformer with the terrible animation and voice acting and stuff, which I love that they're doing that. But to complete that experience, Limited Run are also releasing, as you say, the lollipop controller <laughs> along with the game for all your CDI experience gaming needs interestingly it's only compatible with pc and the nintendo switch Mm. it won't be compatible with playstation or xbox although the game is coming out on playstation and xbox as well as switch and pc of course which i think is a bit of a strange choice but maybe it's licensing and hardware issues so it doesn't work on the on the cdi itself no, no, this uh, is for modern, USB, this, USB, this is, yeah. Yeah, yeah so it's USB, so it's not for the CDI, it's for the new game that is coming out on, you know, which mm. is based on the original CDI games, but it's coming out on PlayStation, Xbox, PC, and Switch. There's going to be a grey version and a pink version. And uh, I was quite surprised, I don't know if I was surprised at this. Like, I don't know how I feel about this, so I'll get your guys' opinions on it. $35, is that good? I feel like that's quite I good. Th- well, I mean, you know, these controllers were notoriously dreadful for gaming, yeah. Um, but really, I mean, you know, you've got to think of what the CDI was meant to be. It yeah. was really meant to be one of those kind of, you know, that market that never took off a multimedia living room device. Mm. So really, these controllers were designed to browse TV through. Remotes. Well, they were meant <laughs> to be like, you know, to guide through encyclopedias and look at atlases and that kind of thing. Yeah. And um, that was really what they were intended for. So, I mean, they were never intended to be, you know, game control devices, really. And the CDI also had like a, a more traditional kind of remote control they had like a little joystick in the top of it. But there was also later on when they kind of repositioned it as more of a, a gaming system, they released like a quite a nice, actually, I've got to say, like a, a proper controller with a D-pad and some fire buttons on it too. Um, but yeah, this controller, I mean, if you ask most people about what they associate the, the Philips CDI controller with, this will be the image that comes to mind. And I must hmm. admit, I, I've tried playing, I think it was Flashback with oh, this. Wow. And I consider myself quite a seasoned flashback gamer, you know, played it on the Amiga since it came out. But God, I couldn't even get past like the first couple of screens using nice. this on the CDI. Yeah. The CDI yeah. mouse looks quite nice actually yeah. compared to this, which is like a, a huge kind of disc. Mm. And then um, is, it's got these two kind of rubber heads on it. But, um, you know, this, this CDI controller, I think um, it looks like, you know, like an old, you see the movies where they pick up an old phone and they'd have like their, ear set and then they'd have the little speaker uh, yeah. separately it's kind yeah, of like the ear, ear set <laughs> version of that like mixed with a, a tv remote control 
it, it reminds me of a mix between you hold it like a Wii remote, you know, you hold it one handed, you yeah. know, like a like a TV remote that, you know, kind of vertically and then it's got a terrible would you even call it a D pad? Like a circular yeah. D pad at the top. And then, you know, an L a, an L button, a B button, and a R button with like a plus, a select and a minus, and then like is it X, Y, and A at the top? Like it's just awful. It's 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 just a terrible controller. But the game, the uh, the Arzati game uh, that it's you know meant to be used for, does have a mode, a control layout for this controller built yeah. into the game as well. So obviously it's meant to go with this game. But if you are an absolute just like you know glutton for punishment, I guess you could play other Switch games with this controller if you really wanted to. <laughs> Imagine trying to play like the Quake remaster or something with it. Yeah, yeah. Mario yeah. Odyssey or something yeah, like that. That'd be an experience. Um, but I, I think it is very cool they've done this. Obviously, it's a bit of novelty, isn't it? And, you know, mm-hmm. the fact that I think even for the price, you know, if you, you look at original Philips CDI controllers, you actually have quite a lot of money now on eBay. Um, okay. You know, again, because of their rarity, I guess, these days. Um, it's available in a original CDI grey, but mm-hmm. also, like you said, a, a bright pink version too, which at first I was like, I remember ever seeing a pink version of it on the CDI, but it makes sense because of the logo of the game is in pink and the main character yeah. and they've got some vinyl releases of the soundtrack that are also this kind of bright pink color as well yeah so it kind of fits in with with the aesthetic that they're doing um which i think you know the whole thing does feel a bit novelty doesn't it those philips cdi zelda games have got a bit of a cult following but i don't think anyone takes them seriously as like good games yeah. so the whole thing feels a bit tongue-in-cheek anyway so i think you know for that kind of style, this having one of these controllers really completes the look, actually. So, uh, yeah, very interesting. Like you said, pre-orders are available now, and if you want to get the game on Steam as well, I think that comes uh, onto Steam in a couple of weeks' time on on Valentine's Day, nice February the fourteenth. So, uh, could treat your other half. <laughs> I know what I'm doing. <laughs> if you want to get dumped, so uh, something else actually that's very niche, and I must admit, something I wasn't at all familiar with, and I wonder if Joe, being our resident Sega fanboy has heard of this, just proving again that Sega was so ahead of the time. Because, you know, you think now, biggest thing in technology, in modern tech, artificial intelligence. But it turns out Sega actually released a computer dedicated to artificial intelligence back in 1986. Now, this is the Sega AI. I hadn't heard of this. I'm not going to sit here and go, oh, yeah, I've got one of these in the loft. Or, oh, yeah, the Sega AI, I know everything about it. Nope, not a clue. I've got no idea. And I was half expecting you guys to turn around and be like, yeah, we had one of the developers on the show or something. Oh, I wish. I mean, I mean usually like... It's, like, it's, it's a Japanese machine as yeah. well, it isn't is. it? So it is. that would have been tough, yeah. It, it's very interesting because, I mean, I tried to do a bit of Googling around to tr- you know find out a little bit more about what this device is. And all I could find was like a couple of forum links. Mm. And it turns out that, yeah, this machine came out in 1986 for the Japanese market. And it was aimed at the education markets, especially, right. you know, basically trying to teach kids what they thought at the time was kind of the the up and coming AI revolution, which right. obviously in 1986, very ahead of the time. And it comes built in with a, a programming language called Prolog that was actually designed for, you know, creating artificial intelligence programs. So even though it came out on a very limited run in Japan, there were plans apparently to release it in America, but then, you know, with Sega kind of pulling out of the educational sector and focusing a bit more on gaming, it turns out those plans never came through. But looking at it, it is a very interesting looking device. And in terms of the hardware as well, I mean, 
I've never seen a computer that looks quite like this. Yeah, it's 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 like a big mashup of stuff. So yeah. they've got like a keyboard that's uh, built in, but that sits on top of a touch tablet. Yeah, and then you've got like a cassette unit on the side as well, and a, a really strange controller. Um, with also the option to have um, an external bus put in there, uh, a, a, a 8-bit CPU uh, sound unit as well that could get put into there with um, uh, two joysticks going on there. And a, a printer, uh, you can also connect it up to a phone as well, so it's got a little kind of modem option. Um, pretty insane for, for back then, and uh, it, it seems that there's only around 13 to 15 games that ever came out for them. And, you know, there's stuff like, um, you know, Alice and uh, Popo's Adventure and Mozart Academy, you know, all kind of edutainment uh, games. Yeah. yeah, and it's got an NEC Corp uh, V20 processor, uh, which was an enhanced version of the Intel 8088, um, and also has uh, different options as well. You could have the Prolog language in, in ROM, or there was their basic and logo options as well, you know, for that educational market. But the reason we're talking about this is, you know, the fact that we hadn't heard of this before, uh, but now, if you wanted to explore it a little bit more, it turns out that the uh, the Sega AI has now been preserved and dumped online. Yeah, so uh, a Sega superfan, Omar Cornett, um, and some collaborators he's worked with at SM- SMS Power uh, is the name of their website as well. Um, they've just made a huge kind of like data dump, uh, completely public, which is including like ROMs of all the games photographs like MAME drivers you name it like I, it's really interesting to find out where they got this from because of mm. as you say before now there's little to no information about i was gonna say this console but this system on the internet anywhere other than you say like you say a few forums and pamphlets and stuff like that but they have literally dumped like everything you'd ever need to know about this system and it's mm. huge this document this documentation isn't it yeah and it looks like they've already done quite a lot with it. Um, I love the fact they've got that kind of early main driver, um, which is, again, in quite a limited state at the moment. It is, you mm-hmm. know, just a, basically an alpha version of that. Um, but I imagine now that this is out there, you know, if, if you think of any company that's got a passionate following, Sega would definitely be up there, wouldn't it? You know, it's one of the top ones in the retro scene. So I'm sure that people will get to the state where this is quite easily emulatable. I think yeah. the phrase is, in, uh, in MAME, so everyone can explore this uh, very quirky library. And I mean, looking at the games again, they look like the typical kind of educational sector games, and obviously they're all in Japanese. I mean, you know, I'm pretty confident that some fans will translate them. That normally does happen to English. But I think for me, it's going to be exploring kind of the, the programming side of it, you know, seeing how that, that prologue yeah, interpreter works. I think works. also it seems that these, um, I'm, I'm reading one of the promos at the moment that's kind of been translated oh. and is in really low res, but it, it seems that you'd have a kind of response uh, with the machine. So, you know, you'd ask it, it would ask you questions, it would learn how you kind of respond to them and, and it would teach in that way. And I think that's the idea of the AI inside it. Yeah. Just the fact that they were focusing on a, an AI-based system, you know, like nearly 40 years ago is nuts. So uh, do, obviously very, love, very on trend today. I do love the, uh, you know, the slogan on it as well, like just under the little, I guess, controller, mouse pad, yeah. you know, just to kind of put it how far ahead of the time it was. AI computer, Sega Prologue, bringing you into the world of artificial intelligence. Like that does feel very like modern. <laughs> you just imagine if like someone makes like a, 
the next chat GPT competitor on this. <laughs> and it takes over the world. Something becomes the biggest thing. That'd be amazing. Yeah, that, that could happen. make it happen. So if you want to check out the, uh, the little-known Sega AI, I will link up that article in our show notes this week. Now, some big news from Atari, who appear to be on a bit of a roll at the moment. If you're into the Atari 7800, we'll talk about that in a minute. And uh, some big new Amiga developments Ravi will tell us all about in a sec as well. First of all, though, if you're anywhere near South Yorkshire, here in the UK, in particular Doncaster, and obviously listen to our podcast, you're into retro gaming, there is something really good that's happening there for the next couple of months you might want to take the family along to. It's actually a travelling exhibition called Game On that has landed in Doncaster this month. Yeah, I, I've seen this absolutely everywhere, and it, it's really interesting. Uh, you know, Barbican Centre have been running it, and uh, it's run since 2002. And amazingly, one of my good friends, Patrick Moran, is actually the associate curator. So I thought, why not get Patrick on the show? How are you doing, Pat? I'm really good, Ravi. It's good to be good to be speaking with you about Game On. Yeah, so I've seen this exhibition, and um, you know, it's it's been going for quite a while. So. Um, how's Game On changed over the years? And in some ways it's changed a lot and um, in some ways it's not changed at all. So uh, the exhibition, the original version was at the Barbican way back in 2002. I actually saw it when I was uh, 15, so you can maybe work out my age from that. Um, and the pr- basic principle of the exhibition, which hasn't changed, is that it's a playable history of video games and so we really start at the beginning um, with computer space and space war and Pong and space invaders. And then we explore the history of games from lots of different perspectives, looking at you know the development of different genres, um, the way different regions, different parts of the world have created different types of games, um, the different formats for gaming, the different types of display technologies. Um, yeah, really looking at gaming from as many angles as possible and celebrating the history of games and making as many games from that history playable on their original hardware as possible. We have about 120 playable games and yeah, they're playable on their original hardware. So they're vintage arcade machines, uh, consoles with, um, you know, CRT screens, not emulators. Um, but we go right up to today and we highlight, you know, things like the PlayStation 5 and VR and like, you know, the, the latest kind of iterations of video gaming technology, but placing those in the in that long, long history now, which is over 50 years. It, it does sound awesome having that kind of interactivity with it. And um, I love the idea of having, you know, an international art space actually involved with video games and uh, culture in the UK, which is something great to see. Um, wh- why did you choose Doncaster then? Um, well, we, we're always looking to expand, uh, you know, where exhibitions can go. So, uh, yeah, Game On over its 20 year history has been really everywhere. It's been to North and South America. It's been all across Asia and Australia and Europe. And we've been very happy to bring it, you know, to find venues for it in, in the UK. It's been to Newcastle. Um, it's been to London, obviously. And uh, Doncaster and um, Yorkshire was really exciting for us because the show hadn't been there before. And in Doncaster, there's not a big kind of exhibitions or culture institute at the moment. And so working with Doncaster Dome, uh, we were really glad to be able to bring this, you know, unique museum experience to uh, audiences in South Yorkshire. 
Oh, that's absolutely awesome. And uh, yeah, I, I just think it's great seeing the kind of art sector in, involved with this stuff. And what would you say is your favourite uh, personal game that you've you've played there or, or favourite machine to get on? <laughs> oh, that's, uh, that's a really tough question. Um, I guess because when we install the exhibition, obviously you have to test the games. I guess I've got more competitive again, so it's it's great fun to be playing Smash Brothers with some of the installation team. Um, and yeah, it's a game I think I'm relatively competent at, so that that was really that was a good one. But there really is so much in the show. You know, we go from racing sims to farming simulators to text adventures uh, to you know some of the first 3D games, uh, some of those early arcades. We have a Daytona arcade machine. Oh, nice. There's so much for people to play and try. So, yeah, I think that's the the kind of, yeah, the, the great strength of the show is that it really is something for everybody. If you're, a, you know, as I'm sure a lot of your audiences, like sort of people with their own gaming collections and know a lot about the development of video gaming, they will find unique games in the show, but also for people who don't really know gaming, it's a great space to kind of like try and experiment and just get a better sense of what gaming um, can be or has been um, because, you know, and you don't need to spend a lot of money to both try PS5 games and then also try, um, you know, play Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. So, yeah, I think that's a really special and unique experience. Yeah, I think, um, you know, wider culture-wise, it's it's good to appeal to a lot of people because, um, you know, the video game industry is such a huge thing in the world. And um, even these days, we sometimes see on the news, people are still kind of talking it down or, or not giving it as much uh, attention that it deserves. And I think this uh, really puts it front and center. Yeah, we really want to celebrate gaming um, as a culture, as a, you know, the the history and you know just really highlight that it's been an important you know part of so many people's lives and that they can kind of uh, rekindle that interest through through the exhibition or really discover a new interest in gaming uh, through Game On and it's uh, open for a limited time as well because it's a, a touring exhibition so um what what are the dates yeah so it's it's open now it um opened last week and then we're there until i think it's the 9th of april um and it's open seven days a week at the moment wicked well thank you so much for coming on pat uh thanks ravi it's such a pleasure so if you want to get tickets for game on on in doncaster right now until april i'll put those in our show notes this week as well i just feel like uh, every week we're talking about Big news from Atari. Obviously, we had the 2600 plus, uh, but now they're showing some love to the Atari 7800, which I've always found quite an interesting machine. And obviously, you know, the, the 2600 plus can play 7800 games. So, this is quite timely if you did get your hands on one of those maybe for Christmas last month. Uh, but Atari are now publishing three Atari 7800 classics and also bringing back the controller, the CX78. I don't think I've ever even seen. 7800 to be honest but mm. it was the competitor like to the nintendo in the master system wasn't it yeah i've got yeah. a feeling didn't they bring that i think it was kind of developed before the video game crash and then kind of abandoned and kind of set on a shelf didn't it for a couple of years oh, okay and then like you said i think atari basically brought it back to compete head-on with the nes yeah. Um, yeah, yeah obviously nowhere near the success level that the nes had but the 7800 has definitely got its loyal fans yeah for sure and uh, the games in question are going to be fatal run Food Fight and Ninja Golf, which I'm fairly sure Ninja Golf, the Yankee video game nerd, covered 
yeah. his his review of the Atari seventy eight hundred, which must be about fifteen years old now, actually. Well, these three um, games. I mean, Fatal Run. That was a post apocalyptic racing game where players okay. get to deliver a vaccine. To save humanity. I was very timely right. with the last couple of years. Uh, <laughs> food Fight came out in 86. That's a game where players throw food at chefs yeah. while you race to eat an ice cream cone. And then you've got Ninja Golf here, which is weird. It's kind of a side-scrolling action game with golf elements in there as well, where you fight enemies between shots. Yeah. Um, a few of these were on the Atari 50 collection. So yeah, they were, yeah. Might play them. That's weird. It's like golf is one of the calmest yeah. kind of games ever. <laughs> and then it's like attack and then golf. Yeah, yeah. yeah bit, of a, bit of a strange one, isn't it? But the... Uh, the controller that they're releasing as well, the CX78 Plus, I guess it just kind of screams, you know, because that I don't think that, am I right in thinking that wasn't the original controller for the 7800? That was um, the one it shipped with. It was um, the one it shipped with. Yeah, okay. it was the one that it shipped with. I've got a feeling there may have been an earlier revision, like I said before, the video game crash. But I, I've got a feeling that, yeah, this basically the, the CX78 was obviously an answer to... Nintendo's D-pad, yeah. you know, base controller. So Yeah, you've got a D-pad and a uh, one and two button on there. And Although if you look at the D-pad, the D-pad is there, but there's also a screw-in joystick. Yeah, I did notice that and uh, I, I did find that quite interesting and made me think like I, I kind of want to see one of these and mm. play with one of these now just to see what they feel like. Um, but yeah, it's, it's cool that they're, you know, re-releasing all, these Atari, all this Atari stuff. And uh, we've said a few times on the show only in recent weeks it's nice to see atari back on track you know mm. releasing you know games again <laughs> you know and not I, hotels and casinos and stuff i always kind of like the slanted designs that they do with the atari stuff where they've you know they've got angles uh, mm. and it, it seems a bit weird though these two little recesses for the buttons i can imagine you know people would get loads of sticky stuff or food or stuff like that <laughs> crumbs. Trapped, crumbs trapped in these you know um but yeah, it, it does look like a nice kind of design controller. I don't know how comfortable it would be. Yeah, I mean, I've not played on one of these in person. I've got a feeling that kind of screwing joystick was probably because they didn't want to kind of rile up Nintendo's lawyers. Yeah, so, yeah, it was yeah. a copyright, wasn't there? The yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, even though like everyone did it in the end. Um, but I think, yeah, obviously at that stage, they were just kind of, you know, playing it careful, I suppose. But you can unscrew that joystick, so it's literally just a, a D-pad. Like you said, you've got the uh, the two red fire buttons that have got kind of finger grooves that, you know, probably would, yeah, rest a kid's finger in, maybe not mine these days. Um, but I think, yeah, it, I mean, it looks awesome. And again, if you are going to get these Atari 7800 titles to play on the 2600 Plus, uh, I'm looking at their website now, like the three games, obviously they come out in physical. Interestingly, no manuals included though, which... Oh, that is strange. Yeah, it does feel a bit of an oversight. Yeah, but also, I think this is good that it's available worldwide. I've noticed that a lot of right. the stuff has been USA exclusives, mm. but all the 7800 stuff seems to be uh, worldwide, which is maybe maybe there's different licensing laws in, yeah. in different regions of the world, but... Um, I, I thought they were just doing US exclusives of all the stuff that they were releasing recently. Or maybe the 2600 Plus has been selling pretty well in Europe. That could be a reason why they're now kind of, you know, expanding these to... Yeah, yeah, that's also too. worldwide yeah. available. But um, Yeah. yeah. Um, but I think having the, the 7800 controller to play 7800 games does make a lot of sense. I mean, they've been, kind of been looking through it. I imagine this is designed to plug into the Atari 2600 Plus. It will have like a, you know, a D-sub connector mm-hmm. rather than having yeah. usb although it doesn't mention that detail on their website interestingly but <laughs> that is what i imagine it's going to be price pretty reasonably as well i mean the games are going to be 29.99 dollars uh, the controller is 24.99 so 
So, which I think is pretty reasonable for, you know, modern kind of updated controller that looks yeah, and yeah, feels identical products, to the original. So, uh, yeah, if you want to get hold of those, um, I'll link up that page on Atari's website right now. Nice to see so much good stuff coming out from Atari recently. Now, there's one more story to talk about before we hop into this week's special guest, Richard Faulkner. Uh, lots of information about the ZX Spectrum Next Scene coming up soon. Uh, but also, the Spectrum Next Scene is not the only place that's really happening right now. Feels like the Amiga... As always, Ravi, there's some exciting developments in the Amiga world, including something that you were talking to uh, Joe and I about a couple of weeks ago called the AmiCube. Yeah, this is the uh, AmiCube F1200, and this looks really cool. Um, AmiCube are the guys that previously did some of the uh, new- newer Minimigs, so uh, the Minimig was open-sourced. And um, Explain what the Minimig is for people. The that Minimig is an FPGA recreation of the Amiga, and this was actually... Years ago, I think there's a video on me of me on YouTube, like in 2005 or something, like looking at one or 2008. And um, this was one of the first times that we saw kind of the Amiga getting recreated on an FPGA chip. And um, it got open sourced. The core of that was then used on the Mister. So, right. you know, people are using the Mister at the moment. That's still the minimum core. But AmiCube did an updated version, so you could put modern features in there. You could have, um, you know, PyStorm. You could have different CPUs in there. And now they've decided to create their own designed FPGA computer. Uh, The focus of the computer is uh, compatibility with the Amiga, but it's also got a lot of other options as well. So um, I think this is good because it it, it pushes it into the kind of wider world as well so um it supports 50 different systems uh that's what they're hoping to do very much uh, like the mister then yes yeah, yeah but but a, a piece of kind of hardware that's not kind of designed for something else you know um that it's, it's got the uh uh sega support nintendo neo geo and uh hopefully that will all be implemented in fpga um, but then it's got some pretty nice stuff in there as well. MIDI capabilities, uh, 64 mega RAM, USB support, DB9 joystick support, a Wi-Fi module, real-time clock. So looking at this, obviously, I think there's going to be a focus on the Amiga side of it at the start. But once you get this system, um, it looks really cool. And it's a mini ATX de- ITX design. So you can have it in a in a small little case. And I think people will start making custom cases for these and uh yeah it, it just looks like something with tons of potential yeah and i mean obviously the, the mister is the, the first thing that comes to mind when you talk about this kind of machine um there are some really interesting videos that you can watch here that kind of explain a bit more about kind of the approach that they see this going down you know in terms of the amiga community for example they're on about adding you know maybe some zorro slots to it which yeah, was kind of yeah. the Amiga's, the Amiga's version of PCI, the old, wasn't it? Uh, the old old cards in there. Yeah. And, uh, or ICER, I suppose it would have been. Yeah, the equivalent of Yeah. Um, and a CPU slot in there as well, like, you know, the Minimig had to. So it does feel interesting, particularly, I mean, there's no kind of word on um, pricing of this yet. I mean, it was literally shown at the, the World of Commodore show uh, just before Christmas in Canada. Um, so if you want to check out these videos, it's an interesting presentation. Um, audio is a little bit quiet on it too. So, uh, you might <laughs> to get your volume blasted. Up, but I think it's kind of, at the moment it's, it's just been put out there. Yeah. Um, you know, it, they've put out a few videos. It's kind of the, the proof of concept thing. I don't know if they're going to go into big production, but I don't expect it's going to be that expensive. The mini mig has always been 
like a, a low cost system mm. in, in that regard. So, and also, you know, getting those um, D10 nanos as well was really tough at one point. I don't know if it still is, um, if the supply is getting limited, you know. Um, so, yeah, I think I think this is a nice route to go. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there is a lot happening in the, the Amiga scene right now. Obviously, we've got you know, the A500 MIDI came out last year if you want like software emulation. I know Amiga Kit are doing something called the, the A600GS, which is going to be kind of a Raspberry Pi-sized Amiga emulation box based yeah, on the ARM d- Yeah, that's so. interesting. That's um, yeah. ARM-based. I think that's a – I don't know if it's an FPGA, but I think that's more aimed at the kind of workbench yeah. um, operating system kind of stuff. I, they haven't put much uh, details out there yet, but it seems like all the applications that they've put on there are kind of more serious Amiga side of stuff with the aspect of gaming where the mini Amiga was more solely focused on gaming. I love the fact as well that these can emulate different systems. Well, you know, obviously FPGA shouldn't call it emulation and then people kick off about that. Hardware reinterpretations, I suppose they are. Um, I don't own any, any of these systems. I mean, you and I did talk, didn't we, a couple of years ago about getting some misters and then I think COVID hit and then obviously the supply chains all... Well, yeah, that was the time I was ready waiting with yeah. the money. I was in a queue. For We're like both going to order one, won't we? About a year, yeah. yeah. So this could be something that maybe this could be me dipping my toe into the FPGA market i think because it doesn't yeah, look very I think, cool i think to be honest there's so many out yeah there at the moment it's just kind of which one's gonna suit your needs and which one's more developed because uh, uh you've also got the uh, mega 65 as well um there's so many that i actually forget about yeah. <laughs> what's out there yeah good time to be a retro fan definitely, definitely so if you want to yeah. check out that um presentation it's in two parts i'll link up both of them in our show notes and all the rest of the stories at the retrohour.com now, of course, we are into February, which is, uh, you know, what, like I said, January dragged on so much. Luckily, February is a nice short month, the shortest month of the year, I believe. And is this year a leap year? It is. It is. Yeah, we've got an extra day. 29 days. Still a short one, though. <laughs> um, and that does mean that we are now only a couple of weeks away from our next patrons hangout. Now, we did our first one of 2024 last weekend, and it was incredible to see, you know, so many of our wonderful community and so many new faces that joined us as well. I mean, we had such a good laugh talking about all kinds of different things, didn't we? Yeah, yeah. We uh, ended up talking about different like SCART cables and how it kind of blew my mind that like in the UK, obviously we use, you know, SCART component cables and stuff like that. Yes. Some Americans had never seen one. I think yeah, uh, some Amer- Bubba, Bubba was saying he'd never seen one on the channel. Yeah, which uh, I just, you know, kind of like that would blow our mind, but I guess it's it's normal but other people in different parts of the world and stuff, which is fantastic that all these people from all over the place come on. Uh, And then we actually, uh, something I really loved, we ended up talking about um, gaming soundtracks and then uh, covers of these gaming soundtracks, uh, which is also wicked from kind of like uh, medieval music all the way up to uh, modern metal, which was really fun. So yeah, it was a really, really good hangout and it was good to get back on it after about five, six weeks off because of how long January was in the Christmas period. Yeah, so we're going to be doing another one um, in a couple of weeks' time at the end of January. If you'd like to get an invite and come on, basically it's just we all get together Sunday night for a couple of hours, um, just geek out about all things retro, really, like a massive Zoom call. So we'd love to see you on the January, uh, on the February one, rather. And also we do our uh, bonus patrons exclusive podcast, The Retro Hour After Hours, of which there is going to be a new episode dropping this coming week. Um, we did need a little bit longer on this one because we are playing, uh, it's basically video games that we are embarrassed to say we've never played. 
<laughs> that's the idea of it, isn't it? So we needed a bit of time to kind of devote ourselves to properly delving into these. And I was playing some uh, games on my N64 and Super Nintendo, and my AV cable died oh, the other wow. day. I got 10 minutes into one of the games, and then it broke. Luckily, you can order brand new AV cables for the N64 and the SNES and the, the GameCube off, uh, off Amazon for about yeah. four quid. Next day I, delivery, so I've got I'm another one coming tomorrow. I say, I am addicted to Prince of Persia Sons yeah, of Time. Like, you should have mentioned one of the games, eh? Yeah, <laughs> just one little preview. <laughs> it's so good. So, uh, yeah, these are games that um, we basically, you know, games that we feel like we should have played that we never have, kind of bucket list games. So uh, we've all got four each, and we're going to be giving our reviews of them on the After Hours podcast next week. So if you join our wonderful patrons community as a gold member, you unlock all 38 episodes of that. Loads of listening there. You get the normal podcast ad-free each week, and also patrons stand by we've got an extra couple of news stories just for you that we do on each week's podcast as well but of course the main reason for supporting us on patreon is just that really to support the show you know basically to make sure we can keep the lights on keep bringing the podcast out every single week pay for all our hostage and all that kind of costs as well and of course new members get inducted into the most prestigious high score table in the world of retro gaming and that is the retro hour hall of fame hall of fame and let's welcome in our latest members thank you so much to will bamford scott mcculloch and adam surtees who all join us on patreon over the last couple of weeks we massively appreciate your support and if you'd like to join our wonderful patrons community all the details to sign up right now are on the website at theretrohour.com Okay, next, going inside the world of synths and the Spectrum and lots more as well. Lots to talk about the ZX Spectrum next scene as well with our guest Richard Faulkner. He's coming up next on the Retro Hour podcast. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast and we're here today with Richard Faulkner and he's known as One Man in his techno shed. He's been making music since the Commodore Plus 4 and he's now making music for the ZX Spectrum next. And it's great, great games that have just come out, uh, Bikers and uh, TX1696. How are you doing, Richard? Hey, um, I'm good, thank you. Um, nice to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you on. And we've got a question that we always ask our guests, and that's uh, what was your first gaming experience that you remember? Okay, Christmas 1984, when we got um, a brand new Commodore Plus 4, full price, one of the few. My dad paid full price for a Commodore Plus 4. And uh, we sat down in the lounge, put it into the telly, and waited for the tapes to load, and the first game was Space Sweep which was quickly reset and followed by Space Invaders. And we played that for hours and went through every single thing that came with it. It came with about 10 games, which was quite reasonable, actually. Yeah, I also got a Commodore Plus 4. Mine was a few years later. I think we got us Christmas 87. So that was when they were selling them off for about £99, I think, with like, you know, all the Commodore-branded games on cassette tape yeah. came with it. So same games, same games. Yeah. They didn't change them. Yeah, Space Sweeping Invaders, that was it, wasn't it, that game? Yeah. Um, and I remember that had great music, actually, because, I mean, obviously, the Commodore Plus 4 didn't have a SID chip, which I know many people kind of, you know, deride it for today in terms of the, its audio ability. But I do remember that game having decent music, although I remember when you uh, kind of changed direction of the spaceship, the music would yeah. kind of lag and slow down quite a bit, if you remember that. Yeah, like, like, like when you change direction, it's taking more than a frame to render. Yeah. That sort of thing. <laughs> I mean, what did you think of the Plus 4's audio? Because, I mean, I know recently there's been, like, uh, you know, homebrews, like that that incredible OutRun port that's um, been in the works recently yeah. that, you know, the, the stuff they can do with the Plus 4's TED chip is nothing short of jaw-dropping these days, I think. 
Yeah, I, I think it's the same with Pokey and um, the AY chips as well. They're, they aren't really musical, are they? They come from a place of a computer person making something that makes sound rather than um, the Sid, which obviously came from somebody who had a passion to make a synthesizer that belonged inside a computer and sort of hid it there mm. um, for us all to discover. So I think the Sid's a special case. And I, I played the Plus 4 still I've got it set up at the moment in the techno shed with um it's got a 1551 on it and it's got alpha ray in it and alpha ray doesn't come out of that computer very much but it's such a good game to play mm. um and if you go and do that it's, it's like you say the music on it and what they've achieved with it is absolutely fantastic and he's got two channels of tone and one channel of noise and that's it it's not as good as a vic 20 yeah yeah it, it's absolutely superb um obviously the plus four has lots of colour, which makes the games actually look really nice when people put in the effort. Um, if you go and play Alpha Ray or Pets Rescue, you know, Pets Rescue is to all intents a Mario game. It, it looks like a Mario game. It plays like a Mario game. It's fast and the music is good. And Alpha Ray plays better. Yeah, the C64 can't do what Alpha Ray is. It, it, it's not capable of it. It's beyond what that machine can do. Mm. Um, and it, if you shout to a C64 owner, they think, what is this machine? Is it is it some sort of Atari 8-bit or is it an Amstrad? No, it's the one everyone says isn't very good. So it, you, you can do good things with it. And even like the, the demo scene, I, I find, you know, even on this podcast over the last couple of years, it feels like I've had more of a chance to talk about the plus four, you know, the homebrew scene, the demo scene really seems to have taken off in the last couple of years on that system. But how did you find it owning it back when it was a new machine then? Did it always kind of feel a bit like the underdog, you know, compared to the 64 and the specy when you were kind of trying to buy games and stuff for it? Well, ex- exactly. Yeah. You go to the shop and there's rows and rows of specy games and, and rows and rows of C64 games, and not very many plus four games. And Sean Southern, is our saviour when we were kids. That yeah. that, that much is um, true. The amount of plus four games that one man wrote is fantastic. But the other side to that is it had a better basic than the C64 did, and it had an Ishinko monitor, so you go prodding around, you go and learn how the thing works. So I think there's ups and downs to it. I mean, certainly, I think we probably had about 50 games when we finally... Um, sold our original plus four and 50 games isn't an insignificant amount is it it's um, fairly decent well you um, sold that for the spectrum and I think um, the plus four was originally kind of aimed as being a a bit of a spectrum killer or taking on the spectrum yeah Um, what was it like when you got that and how did your kind of taste of music change and uh, were there any pieces that really stood out for you when we went to the the, the, the specy there's um some really good ay music isn't there i mean i think the first thing i we, we did is i used to take a, a lead from the this music was everything i was about as a kid I, yeah i learned to play the guitar from about the age of five and um you know i could go up to a piano and just play it and and that was something that i just had so when you when you get a new computer it's all about the music and I think the first one I found that I thought was really good was Outrun. So that was, you know, my dad had this uh, nicely spanking eye with stereo on the side. And the moment they left the house, it's like, well, this cassette lead can be made to go in the back of there and we'd be pumping that out there cloud. Um, so, yeah, Outrun was probably the first. I mean, I think in terms of 
absolute masterpieces, Tim Fongin with Ghouls and Ghosts and um, Asian Text 2, they're, they're incredible. Um, they, they sound like, in the case of Ghouls and Ghosts, it, it, I know the Sid version's slightly nicer, but the effort is there in just the same way to make something that sounds medieval. It's absolutely fantastic. And if you listen to um, Asian Text 2, it does sound like 1970s prog rock, which mm. I love. I'm probably any person in the world of my age who loves it, but I do. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, t- Tim Fowling's an absolute genius. The Robocop and Batman the movie had amazing soundtracks, but they always stick out as well. Um both the in-game tracks, which were very, um, you know, su- suited to the action, but the title music as well, I think was really, really good in those two in particular. And did you have any musical training then when you were a kid? Yeah, so um, when I was about three or four years old, um, I went to my grandma's house and my auntie Christine had um, just moved house and had had to leave a piano there. And... I just went up and in about 10 minutes I was playing tunes on it um, and went home and I kept on saying to my dad, I want a piano, I want a piano. <laughs> and I got a guitar because <laughs> they could afford a guitar because <laughs> yeah. back then pianos were expensive. Um, but uh, me and my younger brother Steve, we, um, as well as fighting over what we're going to play on the plus four on a Saturday morning, we go every, after, after we finish fighting, we go for our guitar lessons in town um every saturday um my dad always encouraged us so much um i mean he passed away this this last year just gone but it was quite sudden but everything he did was about his kids and it was always no you do these lessons you do these things you're interested in this you can do this um so so we had everything that way we were so lucky um uh so about the age of, I'd, I'd been about six, I think. My brother would have been about four. And we were both playing the guitar from that age. And when we got to about age 11, 12, um, I, when, at school, I learned to play the cello in the middle because they said the guitar wasn't a real instrument for some reason. And oh, I went wow. to high school, swapped into learning classical guitar, which obviously is quite a different sort of ilk of things. So it means I've got quite a lot of sort of strings to my bone, sort of ways of approaching things when I play. Um, when I play at the RCM, I'd always play um, on the classical guitar. I'd just play lots of 8-bit eight, eight music off the spectrum, usually, um, on the classical guitar. It's a unique yeah. twist. <laughs> yeah. Exactly, yeah. And it, it, I, I play Outrun, but it's the specky version of Outrun, so it doesn't sound quite the same. Um, <laughs> Some of those are kind of, you know, people doing like tunes and piano versions and guitar versions of stuff is absolutely amazing. You know, we've seen those uh, uh, concerts where people are doing um, lots of video game music and stuff. Yeah, they're fantastic, aren't they? I, I do love watching them. I, I don't watch enough of them. I'm waiting for this. Um, uh, I, I'm pretty sure I had had one I'd done on a Kickstarter that I've probably never listened to. Um, but, yeah, I, I love that sort of thing. Um that reimagining sort of thing, you know, it's it's like a cover version. You either have to when when you cover a song, it doesn't matter if it's a pop song or a Spectrum Beeper tune. What are you going to do with it? But you're not going to play the same thing or make it worse. There's no point. You've got to be better or different and have a twist that makes it 
you know something new to the audience that you're playing it to and to you yourself because it has to be interesting to do because you're, you're doing it for fun at the end of the day for me um play music for a living my brother does does for a living that yeah so he he has to sort of sacrifice some of that fun and do things he doesn't like doing sometimes you know when somebody wants to hear that one tune and they're paying him he has to play that one tune whereas mm. I, I get to do exactly what i want and have that freedom um so yeah it has to be interesting it has to be a nice interpretation that interests you um and i think usually that comes across to an audience because even if you don't particularly you wouldn't choose to do what that person is doing if there's enthusiasm and intent behind it it comes across and it sounds positive because of it you know you don't necessarily it's it might be in a, in a style that I'm really not into, but if you put the energy into it, I feel it, and I think other people do in, in response in the same way. Yeah, I, mean, um, I was binge watching Banjo Gaioli on on YouTube on Sunday night after nice. one of our patrons brought him up in our hangout, and it's um, you know, you know, never thought I was into banjo music before, but actually loved everything he's doing on there. So I think yeah, yeah. just the style and you know the fact that obviously I recognise the songs uh, brought an extra yeah. dimension to it. And and the fact it's different and it's engaging and he yeah. enjoys doing it. It, it, it that, that's what makes it. Well, it, also you you're into techno as well. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what was the kind of process like on the spectrum then, trying to kind of create some techno sounds back in the days? <laughs> and, um, <laughs> were you playing around with basic? Uh, yeah. So frustrating initially, and we got all the sound trackers and all the you know tried all them. Um, eventually. Another dad special for Christmas got a Yamaha PSS seven nine five, and the drum pads on the bottom keyboard. And we got eventually found somewhere by mail order that would do the special plus three midi aid, and then we were making covers of Prodigy tunes on on a on a Specky from Basic um, using the play command. Nice. <laughs> if you if if you ever have an old keyboard like that. It, Roan keyboards don't do it, but if you have a, pro, a a Yamaha keyboard in particular, if you pitch shift the drums in different directions and put them on different MIDI channels and play them over the top of each other, you can do a pretty convincing techno impression. Because the Spectrum, I mean, it's not a machine that kind of jumps to mind as a musical machine for most people, but actually there was quite a scene on there. I mean, I'm even thinking of stuff like, you know, the Spectrum they came out oh, by yeah. Cheetah back in the day. Yeah, that so. was fantastic. Yeah, yeah. I, I love that play. Unfortunately, it was tape only. You know, I had a plus three, so it was really frustrating. It's like, if I could just save this to disc, mm. it would have made all the difference in the world. I mean, I got a multi-face eventually, but it didn't coexist with it. It wouldn't work together. So it's one of those things you can know that you can make some music with it. And occasionally when we were at school, I would borrow the four track over the summer holidays and uh, put, plug it in and, and record stuff off it. Um, then obviously lay my own stuff over the top, but that was quite late on. And at that point, it was like, yeah, I could also buy the Atari ST from school, mm. <laughs> which um, uh, was quite useful because at school that, that's where I really started going in Cubase. Probably when I was about sixteen, something like that. Yeah, I was, uh, was going to say because you have like an Atari ST that's um, running all the MIDI, and, yeah. and, and then kind of fire it down to the Spectrum. Yeah, uh, so at the moment, the, the the Spectrum actually is not actually playing the music. The Spectrum is you know, has a little routine that 
uh, has a an in, sort of interrupt called a CTC timer that fires and that gives you an interrupt at fixed intervals. And then from that interrupt, I can play from a buffer. So I can say, get that byte from the buffer and put that onto the DAC output, which is actually called spe the spectrum register in, on the next. Mm -hmm. um, so you take that, that buffer one bit at a time, every time you get an interrupt and that plays the music. And then at the same time, when you reach the halfway point of the buffer, I set a flag to then tell the main program to go at the reach the top of the screen next time, go and load the next piece of the audio file from the SD card into the other half of the buffer. And that will then sit there and circle forever playing whatever audio we can get off the SD card. So all the audio on TX1696 is done that way. So um, it's actually recorded in the shed with Atari ST and about 30 synthesizers, um, which all go through an X32 rack mixer and into uh, Cubase on the PC. And Cubase actually then just reads all the audio files. And then I just use that to mix the audio files and render the WAV, which creates the file to put on the next SD card. So that's roughly the process. That must be an incredible set. And I imagine kicks out some heat as well, all that. <laughs> back into, back oh, into yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, not quite enough. I still have to heat it up for it. It's because yeah. it's a shed. It is actually a shed. Yeah. So <laughs> it has a single thickness brick wall, and then the roof is uh, made of thin wooden tar over the top. Mm. So it doesn't keep the heat in. So this, at this time of year, it's like, go and switch the two-kilowatt heater on for half an hour or an hour. Then see if it's actually warmed up enough that my fingers won't freeze to go in there. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it is actually a shed. <laughs> that, that piece of the title is true. Well, I do love the fact that you're actually using hardware synths because I know, you know, it felt like for a long time everyone kind of moved over to just doing it all in software. But yeah. I just feel like there's been a bit more of a movement back to actual hardware recently. I mean, why do you kind of prefer doing it that way over just kind of software emulation? Real knobs, that easy. Yeah. Just uh, everything is actually a physical thing you can get your hands on. And it sounds silly and probably slightly wrong to a lot of people. As people are seeing me, you go and buy a synth and you tinker everything to the nth degree. And and sometimes that, that's what you do. But other times, actually, really good presets make all the difference. Mm. And if you go and play on a... I mean, one of the most versatile synths I've got is a Yamaha Mod X 6 Plus. And on that you can um, go and play FM sounds from the 80s and because it, it, it ha if they say it's M-O-D-X, like a DX7, that's where the name comes from. So you have sounds that are, are considered classics, like lately bass is on so many sort of late 80s, early 90s records, including people like Michael Jackson and Madonna and, you know, whoever, they're, they're all using the preset sounds on some of these synths. Yeah. And actually, that's because they're really good. Um, and you go to the software one, and they don't have all this e immediate gratification. And if, you, if you've got a, a hobby where you're going to make music, you, you don't want to spend three hours making the setup. You want to go and do something and have a result and get the gratification for it. So there's a lot to be said for that too. Um, but actually having separate units, when – the most recent one I've got um, is Beringer UBXA, uh, which is a copy of the Oberheim that they used to make 
jump by Van Hagen. Um, that's his most yeah, nice. famous track anyway. Um, but it, it, it's just that thing, you touch the thing, and, and it's got real playability. The keyboard is designed to go with the actual synth. It's got um, aftertouch on it. So when you push down harder on the keys after holding them for a second, it might give you um, a bit of vibrato or it might activate a filter or, you know, change the sound in some way. And all the tones on the keyboard relate to the actual, um, yeah, because the keyboard is effectively, it's a, it's a keyboard plus a synthesizer in, in one housing. But when you, because they're designed to work together, it makes a difference. Also, I, I just think I grew up with that and I went away and I do have a Cubase setup that I had in, in the 2010s-ish. Mm. And I had a program called Tune Track Easy Drummer. And it's the only soft synth I use. Um, oh, tell I was one of the, uh, the Arturia Mellotron, because I love Mellotron. But my shed won't um, contain a Mellotron. It's too small. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they're the only two I actually use to stay. It, it just it's that gratification thing. If I go and pick up a guitar, it's the same. You know, I have a collection of probably about twelve guitars, and I'll go and pick up each one. They're all different, and they all make you feel a certain way when you actually touch the physical object. It's like with um, vintage computers, isn't it? I mean, we could emulate all our machines on a PC, yeah. but you know, we like having the original systems or something. Yeah, about it. Not, not, we're not we're not just stubborn and awkward. <laughs> yeah, my wife wouldn't agree with me on that one, but yeah. <laughs> my wife's far too nice. <laughs> as long as it's in the shed. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, 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 no. no. In, we, we have computers in the shed, consoles are in the lounge. And, uh, oh, nice. <laughs> so we, we, we have a setup there, and I've, I've recently got a nice um, BNO TV to go in the corner, Cathode Raybon 21 inch. Oh, beautiful. And of course, they're really thin. It's not a lot thicker than an LCD, actually, so it, it, you don't really notice that it's a cathode ray tube like you might, you know, if you want to got a big Sony or a, a Panasonic, they're, they're really beefy in terms of their depth, aren't they? But yeah, that little B&O means I sort of get away with it. Yeah. yeah. Or, or you could always go and visit the uh, Leicester Retro Computer Museum as well, which, um, you know, I've, I've met you there a few times. And yeah. It's such all... an awesome place. Like, why it is, is it so special? It's a new building. I've, I've not even... Oh, no, oh, I've, oh, not, I've oh, not seen oh, it yet. I've seen photos of it, but um, it, it, I, I need, need to go. To see go. It. The library is amazing. It's actually like an library. It's huge. I can sit there and just pick magazines off the shelf, and I can sit there for hours just reading them. It, it, it's so good. Uh, they've got a nice new kitchen and bar area they're doing out. Downstairs, they've actually got like a proper arcade with an outdoor area behind it. So it's going to be great in summer when they have their um, their dues, like where we've met up before. Part of it is when you go to some places. I mean, I remember they had the National Video Arcade in Nottingham. Yes, yeah, for a while. Yeah. And I went along there, and it, it felt like you didn't touch. And then if you wanted to do any of their special exhibits, you had to pay extra. And it, it wasn't inclusive. It didn't seem friendly or personable. And, you know, I might have been unlucky when I went. You never know. Um, did meet Lyndon there, who, who I'm now working with on Pogi, so that's quite nice. And also the first time I saw a next, which is quite nice. And Treasure Island Dizzy on the Sam Coupe, that was also quite nice. So, yeah, that was, it was a nice day out, but the place itself, because I went back there afterwards, did, didn't set me a light. But if you go 
to the, the Retro Computer Museum, the first thing you do when you walk in is you spot there's several chairs in front of lots of computers all turned on mm. and the invitation is to sit down and have a play. Yeah, and for people who haven't been there, to me, it kind of it feels a bit like visiting a friend's house who's just got every system. Yeah, <laughs> it's like that atmosphere. Yeah, it's really in a friend's inviting. bedroom almost. Yeah, yeah. yeah pretty much. Yeah, yeah, it, it has it has that that vibe to it, and mm. it, that thing that it's it's okay just to play if anybody's there because they're all in the same wavelength as you. It it, it seems more geared geared to geeks. Yeah. Um, which, which is which great. fine by me. Mm, absolutely. I mean, in terms of like, you know, your interest in kind of retro systems, I mean, obviously you mentioned that you sold the Plus 4 back in the day and then, you know, moved to the Spectrum. And did you always kind of have, have an interest in it or was there a time when you left these machines behind and then rediscovered them? How did that kind of go? So um, I, I went from Plus 4 to the Specky Plus 3 um, for the disk drive, which was fantastic. Then on to the Sam Coupe, which I got for 30 quid. From, oh wow! From, from from the computer shop in town because somebody had traded in for the Amiga 500. Then discovered you could buy the disc drives because um, they were John Menzies was selling them off cheap for some reason. I don't know why John Menzies was selling disc drives, but they were. Uh, or was it W H Smiths? It was one of the two in mm. in in Hinkley Town Centre. Got the Sam Coupe working. Used Sam Coupe to do a GCSE project because I, I figured out you could wire up the joystick port with a as almost as like a an analog to digital converse and I used it to create like a little miniature drum system where you could play the drums and the Sam Coupe would then play, use the MIDI to play the um, drums over a keyboard, but you had like a drum controller before right. controllers were really a thing in that way. Um, then from Sam Coupe, you went to the Atari ST, which we played a few games on, but once we got on Amiga, that just went in the cupboard mm. um, until I discovered Cubase. And then it came back out of the cupboard. <laughs> <laughs> Give it a second chance. <laughs> yeah. And uh, when I was at uni, I had a, in, in my room at Kiel, I, I, I was probably pretty horrible as a neighbour in some ways because I had lots of very loud equipment. I had a, a, a Marshall Super Tram, tram uh, stack, and it was 100 watts din, mm. which is seriously loud. And you, it didn't distort unless you got three quarter volume. It didn't. It didn't have a distortion <laughs> knob. You had to actually overdrive the speaker to make it overdrive. So that was popular. Yeah, but your neighbours loved you. Uh, yeah, the girls from stairs in halls. <laughs> <laughs> I feel bad for that now. But um, yes, yeah, so I, I used to have that, and I bought myself a Sansory six track with my first student loans thing. Do you remember we used to get a grant and a loan? Yeah, I just missed out on that. Yeah, I started uni the year oh, after no. they stopped doing the uh, the grants, yeah. unfortunately. So you're, so you're, you're a year later than me because we yeah. were last year. Um, but yeah, that, that paid for a Sansiri 6 track, which is now being refurbished at the uh, Retro Computer Museum, their new music room. Um, so that, that's nice. I've been able to pass it on. But I used to use that with a Sumpty Sync uh, unit. And what you do is you get Cubase on the ST to play the sync track into the Sumter unit, and that would record like a beep track onto a cassette, mm. uh, onto one track out of six. And when you play it back, it would do the reverse, and that they would then send a MIDI sync out. And of course, you could send it out to the Atari, but you could also send it out to the Amiga 500 at the same time, which then, you know, I, I got quite busy with Octomed and some floppies, and I could then trigger drum loops whilst the Cubase was playing the TG100 uh, little 
too much young I had and, and the old Yamaha keyboard that I had from previous years and then record guitar and stuff over it on the six tracks. That that was quite a, a neat little setup. Yeah, sounds good. Yeah. Um but with, with Andy's uh helping me recreate it. I mean Simon Marson's busy refurbing the actual uh six track machine at the moment. Uh there's a few little niggles with it, but actually he says it's mostly functional. He thinks it's gonna work. Um obviously they they have an abundance of old Ataris I would be jealous of. Um they said they've got a Falcon, they've got a um a TT. So it'll be a choice of which one of those ends up running the actual Cubase setup in the studio. I love that um, people will be able to visit your basically yeah, your your retro setup at the yeah. Retro Computer Museum in Leicester. Yeah, that'll be awesome. Yeah. So and and it might have some famous names to open it as well when it actually happens. That'll nice. be quite nice. So I'm yeah, I'm really happy to involve with that. I was I was wondering when you like first heard about the Spectrum Next, and uh, what was your initial reaction to it? Yeah, so uh, obviously I had a couple of things happen. I, I was sort of always watching from the edge, and I'd done a few projects. Like I'd had a um, div um, IDE for my Plus 3, and I got it changed the ROMs, the Plus 3 E-ROMs that um, Gary Lancaster made, and discovered that you could do a lot more. You could speak to hard drives, and Start, start getting back into it that way with the plus three and then when i had um the opportunity to go and see the spectrum next at um the mva event where i think it was the oliver twins organized it for their new dizzy game that they ended up making uh just a spectrum one to eight um when when i saw that they were there and that's what i've got to go see how they made a dizzy game how they planned it out Mm. Um, don't really know anything about the people or anything like that. It's just, you know, it's just a nice thing to do. And obviously, met a few nice people there, saw the new hardware, and thought, yeah, I've got to have one of them. <laughs> and once you've done that, you can't, you find a way, don't you? So um, when, as soon as it was available for the Kickstarter for the um, issue two, I, I got myself on that list and I started coding for it. There's some really nice tooling for it as well. I mean, I know there's some stuff sort of starting to come around for the Amiga because um, I've been looking at that with regards to possible ports of software. Mm-hmm. Um, if you go and look up something called Next Build um, by David Safia, um, it has a compi- it's a compiled basic. Um, it builds, it launches into an emulator called C-Spec by Mike Daly of Lemmings fame. You can then sit there and you can write plugins for emulator to actually debug and see what the states, the registers are and, and see what's going on. There's a very nice piece of software if you're writing in uh, Z80 directly called um, DZOG. Mm. Um, that's a plugin that goes to VS Code, but also plugs into a serial port on a real Spectrum Next or runs against the emulator again. And you sit there, you can break point Z80. You go and see what the states, the registers are. You go and view memory and then F10, F10, your way through the code, which for any code, as you know, uh, if you're used to coding on a modern platform, it, it, it's no different to working on a PC in that respect. You've, you've got full control. Um, and it makes it into a pleasurable experience because you can then start messing around and creating games. And the first thing I did was um, I started creating a, a side score and shoot them up in next build to start with. And then at the same time, Jim Bagley, who's 
obviously he's a real inspiration in terms of he was saying yeah because I've never written a game uh, from scratch at this point it, it's new to me and he's saying well here's how you write a game and it's like ah it, it there is no clever trick this is just writing a game loop and doing events it you know and it sort of all slid into place into how you go about things looking at tile mode on the next it's actually very similar to coding for a mega drive or a c64 in terms of you have a byte or two bytes per tile and if you move that byte one to the left and the whole screen scrolls eight mm. pixels to the left um, and then you've got the hardware scrolling and stuff in the background to make it look smooth so you've got all these little tools that you can use with it so yeah i made, made a little side scroll and shoot them up um halfway through that um i st- stumbled across some posts by somebody called patricia curtis who i didn't know who patricia was at the time she's a great coder um and most people have probably played one of her games if they're my sort of age yeah so patricia wrote scorpius for the c64 um turtles for the st and the amiga mm. xenon 2 for the mega drive and the cdtv Zyconics, the Amiga and ST, Terminator 2 for the Mega Drive, Super Mean Thai Brothers for the ST and Amiga, Sensible Soccer for the CD32, and Death Mask for the Amiga. That's, that's the ones that people would relate to what we're doing at the moment. Yeah, it's a good um, pedigree of games, though, isn't it? Oh, yeah, and some of some of them are fantastic. Super Mean Thai Brothers has got some nice touches if you go and play it. It looks like a, a straight platformer, but all the little animations and touches are fantastic. And obviously, she's got a, a lots of PC and um, at mobile, and I think there's some Wii games and stuff from the 2000s as well. Um, Monkey Mofo is fantastic. That's worth checking out. It's a free download on our website. Um, sort of like uh, Isometric Lemmings. That's how I think mm. of that. That's quite a neat game. Um, yeah, so Patricia's started work on what she considers to be the last game she's ever going to write, and she wants it to be the best thing to go out on it's meant to be a swan song a a really fantastic game and she wants somebody to do some music now at the same time i've also got in touch um with a friend who i knew from school just randomly i spotted him on uh the zex spectrum next uh facebook page uh andy laird and he was starting a venture called cavern games and he was towards the end of writing a game called bikers and he needed some music for it so uh I got a Vortex Tracker out on the PC because there wasn't a tracker for Next at that point. Next door exists, but it's quite heavy, and he'd used all his CPU time already, so I needed to make it lightweight. Um, so I wrote him a, a three-track AY song, which he used for his biker's release, um, and he showed me something he'd been working on using the copper which was the ability to play digital music using the copper on the next. Uh, the next has a copper like an Amiga. It's quite similar um, in a lot of ways, but because the way the registers are organized on the next and the fact you can't do um, DMA playback of audio if you want to use the DMA for something else, and he's using it for moving the screen around, so it's being used for something else. Uh, he had to find a way to play digital audio, and this was an experiment in the background, and he had it playing digital audio using the copper. Um, then Patricia obviously wanted music for um, TX1696, and looking around that and 
discovered this time that they were bringing in a new sort of interrupt, um, which is a proper Z80 thing um, that Xerox released, a separate chip on most Z80 machines called a CTC timer. When it fires, it creates, creates an interrupt, um, and it does that at a regular time interval, which means it's perfect for playing back music at a fixed pitch um, from a sample buffer. And we made a little mechanism, uh, I made a little mechanism that filled up this buffer and played out from the CTC timers. And Patricia wove that into uh, TX1696. And the beginnings of our little team were made. Um, somebody called Brett, uh, Bapstar Kane is the name of his channel. Um, he's been coming in and doing QA on it, and he's been responsible for make it into a player's game rather than a technical tour de force because it's very easy to make a technical demo that looks amazing. And TX1696, when you consider the hardware, it looks amazing. And I know I work on it and I'm biased, but I think it does. But it, it would be very, I think at first it probably was a very, very nice technical demo of, of what was possible rather than here's a good game to play. It looked like our type and it looked like Salamander on certain levels and every level is different. So if you, you know, you, you've seen people have seen demos around. The ones you've seen aren't the whole story. It, it, it's actually going to blow your socks off when you see levels two and three and four. You know, things like water and fire and stuff like that. And the animation is superb. But he's then coming and he said, "Okay, well, this doesn't play right. This is too easy or this is too hard." And uh, you know, there's even a level named after him, Brett's Worms, because there's these worms that eject. Um, uh, fireballs across the screen. He hated them, <laughs> <laughs> so we named uh, Patricia's named them after him. Well, I think um, you know bikers as well, and just hearing the soundtrack of bikers in a TX sixteen ninety six, it's it's really impressive with the free AY chips and how absolutely banging it sounds. <laughs> like yeah. I when I heard it, I was I was quite blown away. Um, yeah. There's What's it like having so bikers. much choice? There's there's, there's, three, there's two versions of bikers uh, in terms of the soundtrack. So there's a version uh, that's inside inside the actual game, which is AY, but there's a CD that comes with it as well if you buy the right version. Or I think I've got it on Spotify as well that has the um, bikers soundtrack uh, reimagined, and that was all played on the Atari and. Uh, mixed down like we have with the TX1696 soundtrack. TX is using all the AYs for sound effects. So the DAC is actually doing all the sound output and it's all completely digital. So, I mean, I love just having that creative palette of being able to make anything. And I know that there is a sacrifice that's been made in TX1696 in terms of you. it takes up CPU time to play music like that. Um, however, that also means that CPU time can't be used if you've got um, a 60 hertz television and you want to play it the American way or the Japanese way, the 60 hertz, because you lose CPU time and you physically can't do all the things that you need to run the game and play the music at the same time. So TX has to be 50 hertz. Um, and obviously we have big warnings around us to tell people, but, you know, it, it's worth it. I'm, I'm absolutely certain of that. 
So what's kind of the process of making a, a new Spectrum game as, as a small team these days? I imagine it's quite different to, you know, how they made games at these big software studios back in the 80s, for example. Yeah, it, it's, it's interesting because a lot of the things that we're doing, because obviously Patricia was there and some of the other people on the team were there. So um, Patricia, myself and Brett uh, have concentrated on TX-1696 so far. But um, obviously, Patricia's retiring. We, we want to carry on going. So um, yeah. uh, we've brought in uh, a person called Zingo or Marcus, Rus- Marcus Russell. Um, he's worked mostly with Clive Townsend, who did Saboteur. Um, but he, you know, he's got a list of like 10 games for the Game Boy, for the Snares, for the Mega Drive, you know, so that all the 1990s era stuff he's done he's an artist so he's a pixel artist um and obviously he'll go off and he'll draw stuff and then the imp- how to import that into a next that's my job um, and then we've got uh rich moscone who's um a long-standing friend of mine uh he used to work for daytel in the 90s on the hacking team so he was very good at uh he had, he had a whole team of people that was be sitting there trying to get the hooks into the latest software and hardware to bypass copy protection and all those things you're not supposed to do. On the action replays you know, and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, he didn't do bypassing a copy protection. You know, he's a good guy. He wouldn't do that. Of course not, yeah. <laughs> no, but he, he, he made a, 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 you know, a very nice radio device for the Sega and uh, for, the, for the Sony, I think, and things like that, you know. So yeah, they 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 took part apart all sorts, getting their hooks into things. I mean, it was all around the infinite live stuff, really. That's what built the business, wasn't it? So yeah, um, he's, he's he's mentioned the machines he was using. You know, Game Boy, Game Boy Color, DS, PlayStation One and Two, N sixty four, Dreamcast, GameCube, and PC games. But also they he he then went on to work on a few PS three games. So I think for some software house, I don't think he particularly enjoyed the experience. So, because big software um, projects at, at that point aren't creative, it's like, no, do exactly this. That, that's no longer a fun experience for a programmer. One of the best things about being a programmer, because I do it for a living, um, is that ability to use creative solutions to things and, and think your way through problems and come up with things. And when somebody says, no, do exactly that, you know, it's soulless. There's, there's nothing there for you to do. You, you know, you, you might as well have chat GPT write it for you because it'll produce the same result. Mm. I, um, I kind of um, love the idea that the, the Spectrum Next is the kind of playground. And it is. Y- you guys work with that. But then also it can lead to like ports on the Switch and you yeah. know, kind of modern systems. Um, uh, have you considered going on to these other systems and kind of we courting have. for these? So, so um, we're doing a few experiments at the moment. Um, we have, you know, most, most of the sprites and um, things that are in uh, TX-1696 were modelled in 3D and then rendered down. Um, so we have 3D models, so we can up the resolution on them quite easily. Um, you wouldn't want to change anything else about it because you know it, it's a work of art like it is. I wouldn't want to make it um, different in any way. Just change the resolution of the actual sprites so they look good um, on on a on a bigger screen. And if we can get this running, you know, we're, we're thinking of porting Switch, Xbox, 
PS5 potentially. You know, th- th- those things, if it all works, they're all possibles. And, you know, personally, I'd love to go back and conquer an Amiga in, in some form. I don't know if it's going to be possible because it's a much bigger job because the next to the Amiga aren't that similar in terms of how you program them. The next is very like a Mega Drive or a C64 mm. in terms of the, the model of how you create a game from my point of view some people might say different um but it's yeah it's it's not straightforward obviously everything's plain r and everything's um all about full bitmaps and you have to render it yourself with the blitter so that's a massive change from something where you actually have these tiles that when you put the magic number in it, it just appears there which is what uh, the Mega Drive or the Next or the C64 do in the same situation. So we'll have to see on the Amiga, but certainly some of the other more modern platforms I think are very doable. Um, not going to guarantee anything, but we're, we're certainly looking into it hard. You know, I've always loved the Next as a, a project when I've seen it, you know, at Play Expo, for example, Jim Bagley demoing it there. Um, we've done a couple of panels at events with them. Um, the Specky Next guys as well. In fact, the Clive is doing stuff on there and Patricia and yourself as well. I think it's, you know, it is great that some of the, the classic original developers are involved, but also a new generation of it as well. And obviously there'll be a lot of people that got one under their Christmas tree because, you know, the, the latest Kickstarter backers received them just before Christmas, of which I was one of them. Um, unfortunately, this month's been a bit manic, but I'm looking forward to delving it into the Spectrum Next scene properly next month. I mean, for people that maybe did just get one recently or are maybe crossing their fingers for a third Kickstarter, which you know we've heard some talk might be happening. Um, what do you think the Spectrum Next scene's like then? And is there any like kind of titles that people should jump into then as like a new user or anything you'd recommend? It, it, it's really friendly, actually. Uh, it, it is how I found it. I've gone in and, and just you, you start talking to people and you'll make friends straight away. You know, the same with most of the retro computer scenes, but because it's all concentrated and everybody who's in it is active. I mean, there might be 12,000 Sam Coupes in the world, same as there are Spectrum Nexts, roughly, but half of those are in lofts um, yeah. or unactively used. Um, there are clones of the Spectrum Next for people who can't get one. You can go and buy an Engo or uh, an XP Pi. You can get it in a couple of weeks if you want one. And they're a lot, lot cheaper than an actual Next. And it plays all the same games. as all the same software. So... The, the whole Kickstarter thing shouldn't really be a blocker in the way I think people might think it is. Um, and when you get into it, that immediacy, if you turn on the computer and you either press enter, it's going to a menu that shows you everything on the disc, so you just go and uh, press enter on a game and it'll load it. Or you, you press one down, you go into um, Next Basic. Um, and Or you can have, uh, there's, there's a Wi-Fi card built in as an add-on. Uh, on most nexts and you can use a program called get it and if you use that it will literally go and fetch it over the wi-fi for you and get you that file that you want to load or, or that abandoned way you want to load and you'll be able to go and play it um there's lots and lots of games for it now that you know you can't i couldn't count them on a number of hands on limbs that i have um you're probably talking at least 50 available yeah, probably more than you had on your plus four back in the day. <laughs> I said the number 50 for that as well, didn't yeah. I? It feels right. Uh, I think Clive Townsend actually has a website where he's written down every single game and where you can get it from. Right. I'll link up the show uh, notes and if I can find that. Uh, I've found it. 
clivetownsend.com forward slash next. Right. And on there, yeah, he's, he's going on for, for ages. I still haven't played Bomb Jack. That's and I find the Facebook saying. groups are really interesting as well to kind of keep a, keep tabs on what's going on as well. You know, yeah, the, 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 the Facebook groups, it, it, it's 113 titles available for the next currently. Right, wow. Um, so there's, there's plenty there, plenty more than some consoles that are considered a success, isn't there? Um, the yeah. Facebook groups are fantastic. Um, and there's a Discord for people who don't do the Facebook thing. I, I tend to use a bit of both because Discord's quite good for having uh, uninterrupted discussions with people about mm. why doesn't this work? What have I done wrong here? That sort of thing. Because, <laughs> you know, all, co- all coders need that support. Um, or, or maybe it's just me. Um, but I often go in there and say, what am I doing wrong here? And, and go and find out exactly what I'm doing wrong. But, um, yeah, some yeah. very knowledgeable people around there. Well, I'm really excited to probably delve into the, the Spectrum Next scene and I'm hoping to get a little YouTube video put together in the next couple of months on it as well. Kind of as, a, you know, someone who's a new user, like a fresh set of eyeballs as well, I think it's looks a really exciting scene and uh, machine as well. And I noticed that, you know, pre-orders are up now for TX1696. I mean, anything else that you're working on right now that we should be looking out for over the next few months? Uh, well, um, Pogi is um, something I'm working on music for, for Linden and Phoebus, um, for Wasp. Um, they, they've just some wedding exploding fist and the next one is pogey which was um i think it's it's being long standing i think it's originally a nes game um starring pogey from the dizzy series um but yes I've, I've been busy writing music for that the last couple of weeks um but yeah tx 1696 is going to be massive um and it's luckyredfish.com and if you register there then you'll get um, updates as and when it comes available I'm sort of hoping that we get enough uh, pre-orders and interest for me to actually do uh, a vinyl release of the soundtrack. Um, oh, nice. Because it's, you know, on on the next itself, when it's playing it back, it's playing it back at 16 kilohertz, where it's all mastered in a nice um, 192 kilohertz in stereo. So, um, yeah, it, it, it sounds much, much bigger uh, than it does even on the next at that point. So it would be nice to be able to do something with that um yeah so that that's up in here at the moment that's i love the uh, fact there's going to be a hard copy version of it as well because i know like i saw clive's game also came out uh his new yeah. version of subuta came out on hard copy as well i think having a box copy of the game that just feels really nostalgic it, as well you know does. digital downloads and, are great but having that game in your hand we, we i think from other people i've spoken to more boxed copies are sold than virtual copies yeah I can uh, pe- it. Pe- pe- people like to have the the actual thing um, yeah, I, I, I've got a stupidly new, large collection of vinyl um, for the same reason. It's like I like the actual thing. Yeah. Um, and sometimes I might play it on Spotify, and that's all right. But if I'm in the mood to go and listen to it properly, I'll go and sit in the lounge in the middle of the two speakers and, and turn it up loud. And the day it vanishes off Spotify, you've still got it as well. Exactly, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Well, Richard, it's been wonderful talking to you and uh, getting a little glimpse of you know what's happening on the, the Spectrum Next scene and these amazing projects you're working on. I'll obviously put a link um, for you know, everything we talked about, including the uh, the priority order list for TX1696 as well in the show notes, so people want to pre-order that. That is available right now, and um, hopefully we'll get a chance to have a catch-up at the Retro Computer Museum in Leicester next time I'm there. So thank you so much for coming on and uh, being our guest this week. It's been great to talk to you. It's been my pleasure. It's been wonderful to speak to you both.